Welcome to the Evolution of Capitalism podcast. My name is Mate Rigo. I'm an assistant professor at Yale and U.S. College, and I am here with Chaba Bekish, who is a professor at Corvinus University in uh, Budapest, uh, where he is also a funding director of a Cold War Research Institute. Uh, he has also uh, been a visiting professor at Columbia University, where, where he and I first met about 10 years ago when he was an Istvan Deak chair of uh, East Central European Studies, but he also held visiting positions in Copenhagen at the Institute for Advanced Study at NYU and other places. But really the reason why uh, I asked Chaba to, uh, to talk to me before the holidays in 2019 and to sort of devote some time to it because he just uh, uh, published a new book, uh, a groundbreakingly new book on the Cold War. Uh, this time in Hungarian, but I really hope that the English translation um, will be uh, coming uh, soon. So welcome, Chaba, and thank you for uh, being available uh, today. Um, my first question is is really sort of a, a, a general one, touching on one of the arguments of the book. So the reason why it sort of strikes me as a as a book that's especially relevant for today, because if we follow European politics, we see that East Central European states uh, have a voice that's often perceived as problematic uh, when you know we look at Poland or Hungary. But um, but everybody knows that, uh, let's say, the Prime Minister of Hungary uh, today is uh, a player on a continental level. So East Central Europe, obviously, economically, is probably a periphery today, but politically, it seems uh, very relevant for the European Union. And your book, um, uh, which you know I'm translating into English, is uh, Détente and Emancipation, uh, if you agree with this translation, yeah. argues for something similar for Eastern, East, Eastern European states. Uh, the traditional narrative has been that this region has been conquered by the Soviet Union in 1945 and it has been oppressed and it was oppressed until 1989 or 1991 uh, when the Cold War ended, um, which Cold War has often just been interpreted as a heroic gigantic fight between Ronald Reagan and, and, and Gorbachev or between the United States and the Soviet Union and these East European states have sort of been left out of the picture. And you're saying that this is wrong. Eastern European states have gradually emancipated themselves themselves, and have become very important by 1989. Uh, is this the case? Yes, I think this, this is absolutely true. And the, the most important um, uh, uh, message, uh, perhaps, of the book is exactly this thesis that uh, uh, contrary to the, um, the kind of traditional narrative, uh, what you have just uh, explained, uh, these uh, states, the Eastern European states, got an absolutely new role after 1953. Up until that time, really, the situation was as bad as you described. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, uh, they were really uh, kind, of, uh, uh, kind of satellites of the Soviet Union until Stalin died. Basically, uh, the room to maneuver was very, 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 very little. Uh, for these countries in international politics, definitely. But uh, however, after uh, Khrushchev came into power after 1953, it was not just that uh, that um, it was allowed, uh, uh, perhaps, uh, for these countries to have a greater say in international politics, but they actually were urged mm -hmm. uh, by the Soviet mm -hmm. leadership. So the whole new initiative came from the Soviet Union itself, you know, from the Khrushchev leadership itself. Why? Uh, well, there is some explanation necessary here. 
so uh, Khrushchev's vision uh, was a very different one from Stalin's. You know, Khrushchev really wanted to create a real bloc, a real political military bloc mm -hmm. on the eastern side. You know, not just a bunch of oppressed countries, you know, which would be labeled the satellites of the Soviet Union, as it was the case under Stalin, but a kind of uh, uh, alliance, uh, a real alliance, uh, which he organized uh, actually into the Warsaw Pact in 1955, uh, which would uh, seem to be a kind of voluntary association of a, of a, a group of states, of course led by the Great Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. uh, however, all these countries uh, had the role of, um, of uh, uh, becoming um, uh, important uh, kind of sovereign actors in international politics. You know? That's exactly what, what the Soviets uh, even uh, even uh, named from 1954. Uh, they called this new line the active foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Uh, line. Well, they call it a line, and I made uh, from this a doctrine. I, I call it a, the active foreign policy doctrine, which really became a kind of doctrine. And even uh, we have a very nice uh, document for this. Um, Khrushchev explains uh, explicitly uh, how this special role, this more proactive role of the Eastern European countries, must be uh, produced. Uh, I quote the whole uh, a text actually from uh, Khrushchev's speech, and this is really a, a, a striking uh, 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 narrative. It, it says that um, um, comrades, uh, from this time on, um, it is not the Soviet Union uh, which has to make initiatives in international mm -hmm. politics, but there are many cases when the people's democracies, that is the mm -hmm. Eastern European countries, uh, uh, can act um, uh, more effectively uh, by making initiatives in international uh, organizations uh, in, in many other international um, uh, issues. You know? And of course it didn't mean uh, by any way means that now Khrushchev was uh, uh, encouraging them to become absolutely independent from the Soviet Union, of course, uh, and follow a kind of independent foreign policy vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Soviet Union. No, of course it was a tricky, very manipulative kind of uh, an, uh, idea which, uh, which prompted that, okay, of course, you must make such uh, initiatives, you may make, make such initiatives, but of course, everything must be harmonized with the Soviet Union, cooperated with the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. uh, foreign ministry, foreign relations um, and establishment, uh, and uh, then you can come up with such an uh, idea, such a proposal um, uh, on the international stage uh, as an independent actor, and then all the other countries of the Soviet bloc, including the Soviet Union itself, will support that uh, Polish, Hungarian, mm -hmm. Czech, or whatever uh, initiative. So this became a kind of uh, absolutely well-working mechanism from the late 1950s on. And during the 60s and 70s, this became an absolutely uh, uh, normal way of, uh, of, uh, of working uh, in the international sphere uh, of, the, of the Soviet world countries. So this, um, this um, active foreign policy doctrine actually led me to uh, re-evaluate the whole role of the uh, of the Eastern European countries uh, and the Soviet bloc countries um, in the shaping of East-West relations as well, you know, uh, because it was not just about uh, like making initiatives you know, uh, on the international stage, but it, it was also uh, about their own position vis-à-vis -vis the other international actors. Uh, so I developed from this the the theory of the emancipation of these countries vis-à-vis -vis three entities. That is, uh, number one is the Soviet Union itself. Uh, because uh, if the Soviet Union wanted them to do this, you know, then they, they had to be treated 
uh, as more or less partners, not as, as satellites. You know? And actually, this turn did happen in the 1950s. And then vis-a-vis the West, that is mostly Western Europe, mm-hmm. but also including the United States, mm-hmm. uh, that's the second entity, uh, uh, vis-a-vis which they became in, uh, uh, emancipated. So they more or less became kind of uh, acceptable partners in international politics by the end of the 60s. So it was a long process. Uh, it was a gradual process, but basically by the end of the 60s, with the exception of the GDR. But the others uh, basically got this uh, to, to this position. And finally, the third entity and f- third direction uh, to be emancipated uh, uh, with was uh, the third world countries. Mm-hmm. The third world countries, which became uh, in very important players in international politics uh, in the 1950s. Not, not, not just the 60s, as many mm-hmm. people imagine. The Bandung already, Conference. and uh, Well, mm-hmm. Bandung Conference, but more than that, and because that was well known already mm-hmm. at the time. But the drive of the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc countries countries uh, to to penetrate into the uh, Soviet, uh, in, to penetrate into the third world countries uh, that was not known at the time. Uh, this is very well known from the 1960s. This kind of um, uh, expansion, so mm-hmm. so Soviet expansion, is much more known from the uh, 1960s. However, the whole issue and the whole drive, uh, the process started in 1953. Mm-hmm. And it was not just done by the Soviet Union, uh, but it was also a kind of uh, obligation, uh, an assignment um, for all the countries of the Soviet bloc, not just like the there are well-known cases like the Czech arms deal mm. uh, vis-a-vis uh, uh, Egypt, of course. Uh, but uh, that was not a unique issue. That that was the only one which became more more or less famous, you know, or known. But but there were many such initiatives and uh, all kinds of uh, actions uh, of the Soviet bloc countries by Poland, by Hungary, uh, uh, and uh, other countries of the of the Soviet bloc, Romania as well. But later the GDR itself. Uh, then they became very important partners of, for third world countries uh, uh, in the economic development, uh, uh, all kinds of um, of, um, of uh, modernization plans uh, were harmonized or directed by the political elites or economic elites of these countries in the third world countries. So it was for so it was about many kinds of um, of, uh, of links. Um, uh, uh, with these countries to be established uh, uh, by the Soviet bloc countries uh, already, as I said, already in the 1950s. So, uh, so because of this, they became emancipated in, in, into this direction uh, as well. So they became acceptable partners and actually helping uh, supporters uh, to many very, of course, we have to say, very poor uh, third world mm-hmm. countries, uh, compared to which even uh, uh, the poor Eastern mm-hmm. European countries were regarded to be rich countries uh, of the first world, or actually they were the second world at the time, but compared to the very poor mm-hmm. uh, regions they were uh, handling, uh, of course, they, they were really uh, like almost in the in the first world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And sort of just to follow up on this and sort of to provoke you a little bit, obviously, um, your book also challenges many narratives of national history, how to write and how not to write the history of the Cold War from a national perspective. But narrowing this question down to Hungary, one of the thorny issues is, you know, has the Eastern Bloc been exploited economically uh, by the Soviet Union? And your book um, at least, you know, I mean, alludes um, to the fact that East European states um, might have profited or might have had more agency that than what we traditionally believed in this. Obviously, it's really difficult to prove it with statistics, um, the back and forth, and probably we will not have a statistical answer. But what's your take on the exploitation of the Eastern Bloc by the Soviet Union? 
Absolutely, this is a very important issue, and uh, as you say, uh, for the time being, there is no no absolute answer. Uh, so I haven't seen any study uh, which would prove it by statistics, by mm -hmm. data, uh, who won more mm -hmm. uh, out of this uh, deal, uh, uh, whether the Soviet Union or the Eastern European countries. Um, definitely, uh, I have a kind of an uh, estimation uh, which is based on, uh, on the long-term processes, Mm -hmm. uh, which means that uh, the most important uh, relationship economically uh, um, between these uh, two entities, that is Moscow and the individual countries of the Soviet bloc, was um, that they got uh, uh, energy resources and uh, raw materials at a friendly price from the Soviet Union from the beginning to the end. Mm -hmm. uh, so this uh, in itself you know, is such a crucial mm -hmm. element of their survival uh, that we can, I think, claim uh, that definitely it was the Eastern European countries uh, who actually uh, got more from this mm -hmm. relationship than, than, than what the Soviet Union got mm -hmm. from, uh, from, from, from these countries, of course. It was, a, of course, a very complicated mutual relationship because uh, uh, both sides uh, could argue that, you know, uh, what we do for you is more than what you do for us. But, and there were many mm -hmm. such uh, debates in the 70s, 80s uh, because of a lot of um, the problems with the pricing system and many other things. We are not trying to go into details mm -hmm. about these economic uh, uh, troubles and problems, but uh, all in all, I think the, the most important element is this long-term uh, long process, that is the, the, the energy and the raw mm -hmm. material. Uh, supply uh, was a crucial element of the survival of these uh, European countries. Why? Because they simply would not have had any money to mm -hmm. buy it on the Western market. Mm -hmm. you know? um, even though they could have had money itself, but as we know for present-day uh, listeners, it must be explained that convertible uh, currency was not, uh, not available. Convertible currency, today every currency is basically convertible, or more or less. Uh, at that time it was not, not like, not, not even ruble. Uh, they, uh, the, the, the currency of the Great Soviet Union was convertible. Of course, you couldn't buy anything on, in the, on the Western market for rubles mm -hmm. or any other Eastern European mm -hmm. currency. So you could only get such currency if you, if you uh, could export something uh, to the West and then you mm -hmm. got um, a hard currency in turn. You know? But they could not really export too mm -hmm. much, you know, just agricultural products mostly. Uh, and then, then that, that was not very much. So because of mm -hmm. that, uh, uh, simply they would not have had the, the money uh, to buy uh, uh, the, the quantity of uh, energy resources and, uh, uh, and uh, raw materials uh, throughout the many decades um, uh, from the Western market because simply they never had the, the money for that. So, and then, then this is, most, I think, much more important than anything else. You know? so, so my estimation and my judgment uh, based on such kind of a, mm -hmm. uh, a calculation, uh, but not an actual statistics, uh, uh, is that uh, these countries actually got, got much more altogether uh, uh, from this relationship than the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about two crucial dates that feature in your book. One is 1956, the other is 1989. Let's start with 56. So how can we assess the role of 56 uh, globally? in the Cold War. Um, I'm asking this because you named 1956 as a pseudo-crisis. It's a crisis that was sort of internal to the Soviet bloc, but still it had repercussions. What were these, um, what were these, uh, what are the aspects of the 1956 revolution in Hungary that are relevant from a non-Hungarian perspective? 
Yes, it's a very important question, and and uh, and thanks for raising the problem of pseudo crisis and real crisis, which uh, I really also introduced in this book as a as a as a new categorization uh, and um, something which tries to make a, a differentiation between the two types of basic crisis uh, within the Cold War. Uh, according to my interpretation, there are real crisis and pseudo crisis, and uh, real crisis like the Cuban Missile Crisis mm -hmm. or the Berlin Crisis or several others um, are relatively well known but but generally in mainstream um, literature all the Eastern European crises the big ones you know like in, in 53 uh, East Berlin Hungary 56 uh, or or Czechoslovakia 68 whatever uh, all these are regarded to be Cold War crises because they happened during the Cold War and they had international uh, like uh, like uh, repercussions in some way um, and then because of this uh, they are regarded to be Cold War crises as well. So my interpretation is no, it's not so simple. Whatever happened beyond the Iron Curtain, um, uh, all those crises were pseudo-crises. Why? Because they did not make any kind of a clash between the interests of East and West, you know, mm -hmm. the, the big players. The status quo policy established in 1945 was not harmed. It was not affected by these con mm -hmm. uh, conflicts because they didn't want to change anything mm -hmm. uh, in, in that sense. Uh, and uh, when the, let's say, the Hungarian Revolution was put down by the Soviet army, uh, of course, um, uh, it, it, it didn't make any, any change in the status quo. Uh, uh, the status quo ante was restored, uh, that is, um, whatever happened before 1956 October, uh, this, like order was restored according to the uh, Soviet expectations, and from a Western point of view, that was just, uh, just normal. Uh, of course, internationally and in po political propaganda and in rhetorics, of course, they said the opposite. They said it's a terrible thing, the bloody suppression of the Hungarian Revolution, it's a terrible mm -hmm. a crime against humanity, whatever. Uh, that's how they have to. I mean, that's, that's what, what, what was, the, was the norm of the Cold War, of course. And they just couldn't mm -hmm. agree uh, with the bloody suppression of, a, of an uprising, you know. But they would have done the same uh, themselves, you know, in their own sphere mm -hmm. of influence, you know. Uh, had it been the case, you know, and they understood the Soviets doing this because because that was the that was the rule of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in that sense, we can say um, uh, the Hungarian Revolution was only uh, becoming a common international issue in 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 propaganda uh, in mm -hmm. the world public opinion uh, because the world public opinion did believe that this is a, a big clash uh, between East and West, which was it absolutely not true. Uh, this was absolutely not true because there was no clash at all. Uh, between East and West, it, it was an internal crisis of the Soviet bloc. You know. mm -hmm. um, uh, but there is even a, one more, uh, more interesting example is the Suez crisis, which actually happened through, together mm -hmm. with the Hungarian crisis, exactly the same days uh, of late October, uh, October, early November. And that was also a pseudo-crisis. Uh, that was also a pseudo-crisis. It was not a crisis of the East-West relationship, it was a crisis of the Western relationship. No, it was a crisis between uh, Britain and France mm -hmm. on the one side and the United States mm -hmm. on the other. Mm -hmm. So it was an internal conflict, a very serious one, you know, but for the bloc, it's an intra-bloc mm -hmm. crisis. It was not inter-bloc crisis, so it was not Cold War crisis in that sense, and, mm -hmm. and, and no East-West conflict. It was because at that time, the Soviet Union was still regarding uh, the Middle East and, and Egypt as well, um, uh, a kind of uh, part of the Western sphere of influence, mm -hmm. and, and they respected that. You know? No wonder, once the hostility started, uh, or even before that, the Soviets withdrew all their all their uh, military advisors from, from mm -hmm. Egypt. 
so that when military uh, actions happen uh, by Britain and France, mm -hmm. um, then they would not meet the Soviet advisors, you know, so that there would be no clash uh, between Soviet personnel and uh, incoming uh, British, Amer British uh, French uh, troops, you know, because the Soviets were very well informed, much better than CIA and Americans, about the forthcoming Suez crisis. They knew it days before when it happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and then their reaction was so defensive, you know, they didn't want to uh, um, uh, get into, uh, into the, uh, involved into, into this, this whole conflict. So they regarded it as uh, a Western sphere of influence and, uh, and uh, why it became an international uh, crisis for the world public opinion was because the Soviets uh, actually committed the greatest bluff of the, of the um, uh, whole Cold War area when on the 5th of November uh, Bulganin, the Prime Minister, sent a uh, uh, a warning message uh, uh, in the form of a telegram to Britain and France and also to Israel uh, uh, and to Britain and France uh, about uh, possible um, missile threats, you know, uh, including in, in, the, in the text you know, that uh, uh, if you don't stop, uh, you may be hit by Soviet rockets uh, uh, and you better stop, uh, which was just really a big bluff and, and uh, actually nobody really took it seriously, uh, except there were public opinion. Yeah, mm -hmm. and especially the public opinion of the third world countries, mm -hmm. actually, and they, those were exactly the target. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this was not a real political threat to the enemy, it was a kind of a political bluff directed to the conviction, conviction of the third world countries to, to produce a kind of good image of the Soviet Union. You know, look, uh, we are even willing to, to risk a third world war uh, to save poor uh, Egypt. Uh, which was absolutely not true. They didn't want to do mm -hmm. anything in Egypt, you know. So it was a mm -hmm. big game, um, which uh, created the image uh, that that this was an international crisis. Actually, it was absolutely not, mm -hmm. you know? because, because as far as the political actors' actions were concerned, uh, it was absolutely uh, not an East-West conflict. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're right that uh, it did have a repercussion in 1968 in a sense that it prompted the Soviet Union and Brezhnev, in this case, to sort of you know, give some space to Dubček to solve the crisis internally, because one of the messages and conclusions of 56 is that let's delay the Soviet in military involvement as far as um, possible. Uh, but then again, it doesn't change your, um, your, your, your point about this being sort of an internal um, crisis. But if we move on to 1989, can we say that East European states as state actors had an agency with the global repercussions. Um, you allude to it, you, you say that, uh, let's say the opening up of the borders of, for um, East German tourists to pass to West Germany through Austria by uh, the Hungarian leadership um, accelerated the process by about um, half year. Um, what's the role of agency of East European states in 1989, if I can ask this broad question? Yes, well, in 1989, the situation uh, was rather complicated uh, because, of course, um, uh, the, the Soviet bloc was very much divided, uh, but not along the old lines, you know, but not new, along new lines. You know. So now the division was that there were three reform-minded uh, uh, states, that is the Soviet Union, Poland, and Hungary, 
And there were the conservative countries mm-hmm. of GDR, okay. Czechoslovakia, Romania, Bulgaria. Uh, and within this uh, uh, constellation, the Hungary definitely uh, played a kind of very proactive role uh, since 1988 uh, with, uh, with several initiat- initiatives which were regarded to be quite bold and, and uh, un- uh, unexpected. Uh, let's say the establishment of diplomatic relations with Israel, re-establishment of these relations which were broken in 1967, uh, but now Hungary established in, in 1989. Uh, similarly with, uh, with South Korea, uh, uh, Hungary was the first country to establish diplomatic mm-hmm. relations in, within the Soviet bloc. Uh, again, which uh, which was even against Gorbachev's advice, mm-hmm. you know, because he just didn't want to see that, you know, to happen in such a short period of time, you know. Uh, and uh, then finally, the the uh, East German uh, refugees was the kind of um, uh, stepping over the Rubicon, as I as I say, because uh, because that was the time when it was uh, obviously a very crucial international political question. It was not just a about uh, a Hungarian uh, internal issue, whether to make this decision or not, they knew that it's about the German question. The German question was the core of the mm-hmm. the problems of the of the international politics uh, uh, of Europe and the whole world, actually, uh, throughout the whole post-Second World War period, throughout the whole Cold War. Yeah. Um, and of course, the 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 uh, potential unification of Germany was was always looming throughout this period. Although in the fifties, it was already buried, uh, but then of course it was never given up, especially by by West Germany. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the story in 1988-89, of course, this this also came uh, to the fore, and um, and and the, the East German refugee crisis uh, was then connected to this very big um, you know uh, uh, international issue. Uh, although of course those refugees didn't didn't um, uh, 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 plan anything to 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 do this and to become uh, international players uh, and and uh, actors uh, changing history uh, just like the Hungarian authorities didn't want to play an international role or a historic role uh, uh, by doing this or that they just wanted to solve a problem you know uh, the problem was that uh, Hungary uh, uh, eliminated the the technical barrier on the Austrian Hungarian border um, in the spring and summer of 1989 because in Hungary a word, word um, uh, passport was already introduced in 1988 because of this no Hungarian citizen had to uh, mm-hmm. try to penetrate the border anymore. Uh, so it was just um, in, uh, in, in vain to, to, to uh, uh, renovate and to put a lot of money into uh, the reconstruction of the border, which was very much uh, outdated by that time. So they decided to eliminate it. Uh, but when they did it, you know, of course, this was a kind of call uh, for uh, the East German uh, citizens who imagined that now there will be only a green border, which will be very easy to penetrate and to just to run over to the other side, and then, then we are free. Um, and then tens of thousands of East Germans came to Hungary with this dream and with, with this hope that this can be done, you know. But eventually it turned out because the because the uh, border protection didn't cease to exist, uh, uh, that's not so easy, you know. So eventually there was even an accident. It's a long story, but um, uh, when when one East German refugee was um, uh, uh, killed in a in a kind of combat with the. Um, uh, uh, body, uh, the, the border guard, so even the Hungarian government had to take it seriously. So actually, they made a deal with the uh, with the West German government uh, that they would open uh, the the borders for the uh, for the East German refugees, and which actually did happen on the 11th of September. Uh, which is like a 9/11, you know, as I tell my students that this is a good, good, good 9/11, uh, 
Uh, unfortunately, uh, the, the bad 9-11 is um, better remembered, but there was a good one uh, or originally, uh, which could have been world famous. Um, uh, and then, then really, altogether, some 50,000 uh, East German refugees left uh, uh, through Hungary to West Germany. So, and because of this, of course, uh, this was the beginning of the of the mass demonstration starting in in East Germany. So, this act of the Hungarian government, uh, which was aimed at solving a technical problem, uh, eventually mm -hmm. became a historical, you know, uh, motivator, and then they undermined uh, eventually undermined the communist regime in East Germany itself. You know, and uh, subsequently, definitely, it also um, uh, contributed to the reunification of Germany as well. Mm -hmm. uh, which is also absolutely an important uh, thing to 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 mention. However, this all this was not planned. You know, this was this was just uh, uh, happening like this. You know, and eventually the real historical goal of the of the East European uh, uh, governments um, actually happened after the political transition. Uh, in 1989, all these um, countries became, uh, if not democratic, but the processes started to unfold. And in the spring of 1990, in every country usually. Um, uh, um, free elections were held and the governments were turned into some kind of Western type uh, democratic governments. And, and then, uh, then came the big question: what, what, uh, what, uh, what to do with our international position? Uh, because at that time, uh, all these countries were still solid members of the Warsaw Pact uh, and the Comecon and members of the Soviet sphere of influence, you know, which was never um, abandoned. You know, so there's a big misunderstanding in, in mainstream history. Uh, writing um, uh, today, uh, which is about that 89 changed everything. No, it only changed it for internally. Uh, only the internal freedom of these countries was restored in, in 1989. Uh, and the uh, international freedom of these countries, that is the, their so real sovereignty, uh, mm -hmm. was another yeah. story which only uh, was uh, possible actually in, uh, after 1991, uh, and especially after the end of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Soviet Union, but definitely after the, the uh, Warsaw Pact was disbanded in Ju July 1991. Uh, yeah. And in this process, um, again, it's a long story, we we have no time to get into that, but we can claim uh, that uh, that is especially Hungary uh, in the number one place, and then in the, on the number second place, uh, Czechoslovakia uh, played an enormously important role. And then they were joined by Poland a little bit later. Uh, so these three countries more or less uh, worked as a pressure group uh, within the Soviet bloc, you know, from the fall of 1990. Uh, which then eventually could uh, push the Soviet leadership uh, gradually to make more concessions, uh, and then first they decided about the uh, dissolution of the military structure of the Warsaw Pact, and then a couple of months later they agreed, the Soviets agreed, um, uh, to the total dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, which really gave back uh, uh, their sovereignty. Uh, by international law as well, especially that more, in, more, in several countries by that time the Soviet troops also were withdrawn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're talking about refugees, we're talking about um, sort of movement of people as agents in history. So my broad question is, what's the relationship of the writing of diplomatic history and social and cultural history or intellectual history? Because one could say, uh, reading your book, you know, where are the intellectuals? Where is the traditional argument on civil society and, and, um, and, and the intellectual class in terms of precipitating changes? And in that regard, your book reminded me of uh, Stephen Kotkin's Uncivil Society. Um, that brings me to sort of the actual question, which is, do you have any favorite books on the Cold War or the end of the Cold War? Um, that that you like, and the second part of this question: Where does the archival revolution of Eastern Europe 
and the Soviet bloc stand. Um, you know, before the interview, we talked about the fact that there is still so much to be unearthed. Uh, where do you see the major sort of white spots happening? But first, you know, your favorite book or the books that you like, um, the relationship of intellectual history and diplomatic history, social history and archives. Yeah, so I think um, that basically I, I can I can uh, uh, name two books. You know, one is um, uh, Jacques Levet's um, the, Enigma, the Enigma of 1989, mm -hmm. um, which was the first um, book um, to try to 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 somehow uh, find out the big, uh, big big puzzle why the Soviet Union collapsed, why the Soviet Union was abandoning. At the East Central European countries. So that was a first shot in the in the late uh, late 1990s, and, and um, uh, this was really a very influential book for me in my further studies uh, uh, in this direction. It didn't answer all questions, of course, and uh, and a lot of things uh, which I developed myself uh, uh, in different categories, like the floating of the Brezhnev doctrine or the Brest-Litov syndrome, uh, all, all all came later, you know based on my own research, but they, I'm sure they were somehow impacted by, by Levesque's original um, book. But then the, uh, the other big book is, is not a monograph, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a documentary volume by, by, um, by several colleagues um, uh, like Tom Blanton and Savetlana uh, Sabranskaya and, um, and Vlad Zubov, uh, the Masterpieces of History. Uh, which is a, a collection of documents about the the, uh, the end of communism in the Soviet bloc, and which was published by Central European University Press here in Budapest in the 2010, um, uh, which publishes um, uh, all the key documents of the of the of, uh, of the Gorbachev archive uh, and many more uh, uh, relating um, to the uh, to the to this end story. Uh, so there are enormous um, uh, amounts of uh, uh, very uh, top-level documents which which uh, illuminate uh, the nature uh, and the process itself. You know how uh, the Soviet leadership gradually gave up uh, the idea uh, that uh, these countries uh, must belong to the uh, Soviet bloc, and gradually they got to the conclusion by 1988, by the middle of 1988. No, it doesn't work anymore. Let's start to save our own empire, the Soviet Union proper. You know that's that's what I. Uh, identify with the breast little syndrome, which means that uh, uh, we can make enormous uh, territorial uh, concessions as well, uh, just to save ourselves. You know, and that uh, situation became so so uh, uh, dangerous and so crucial uh, for the Soviet leadership in in mid 1988. Uh, it, it was not visible for the public, for the outside world, not even for CIA. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the. Uh, fantastic thing that now we historians can see this from the documents. It it, it, it was unfolding like this, uh, but the outside world was watching mm -hmm. a, a kind of um, normal Soviet Union having troubles. Okay, but the Soviet Union always had troubles. It's not a big deal, you know. They will survive like they survived everything. Okay, so that's why it became a, such a big shock. No, they didn't survive this one. Uh, uh, but but now we can see all these um, uh, from. Uh, uh, from from these uh, documents, so uh, that's basically why my answer about this. And then the intellectuals and other uh, actors um, in the whole process. Well, this is again a very delicate issue because in Hungary there are two basic uh, interpretations, uh, uh, and neither of them are, them is right. Uh, of of uh, uh, influential political uh, uh, actors, you know, while the former socialists, you know, who belong to the Communist Party uh, in 1989, they claimed that 
the transformation was made by us, the communists, because we were so nice to give over power voluntarily. Look, that, that's what happened, right? So what is your problem? Uh, then the opposition, the emerging opposition, 1988, 89, you know, then new parties were also uh, formed, but also traditional historical parties were reorganized and so on and so on. So this became the general opposition, even an opposition roundtable united them into a kind of big pressure group vis-a-vis -vis the communist uh, uh, government. So it looked like they are a very important and very potent, um, uh, very potent political force. You know? And then they say, no, it was us, the opposition, who forced the, the 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 reluctant communists, you know, who didn't want to give up power eventually, but we forced them to do this. And look what happened: they gave up power, you know, and it was because of us. Okay. So, and then then I then I always say this uh, in a in a kind of um, uh, sarcastic way. No, it, it it's not true. Uh, all the changes were made by history. But what, who is history? Of course, how can you identify history? Well, history in this case is very much close to the notion of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Because without this grave crisis, internal crisis of the Soviet Union, they were on the, on, on the verge of collapse by that time, when all these things happened. You know? But nobody saw that. Okay? Uh, uh, the Soviet Union uh, was in such a state that actually they simply couldn't afford the luxury of trying to do anything for these Eastern European countries, to try to uh, uh, keep them into within the empire. So they just simply were uh, uh, subordinated to the survival of the Soviet Union proper. And because of that, we can say uh, that without the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Eastern European communist regimes would never collapse. Uh, and my mm, notion, of course, this as kind of speculation, is that uh, with the survival of the Soviet Union, now what we would have in Eastern Europe is something like the Chinese model, um, something something like mixed economy and uh, like like sharing of some kind of political power, maybe more than in China, but not in a real way, uh, some kind of hybrid regime. You know what what we call today. Mm -hmm. uh, that was basically uh, the 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 upper limit of transformation according to the original. Uh, Soviet plans, you know, uh, and that that would be the case now uh, with the survival of the Soviet Union. So, so uh, that is the answer to to those uh, political forces who try to claim that they um, uh, did it. Uh, they shaped it. I, I can I can say, of course, the, the the actual processes were technically shaped by those political elites or, or even the masses. You know, in GDR in Czechoslovakia, there were really mass movements and protests and whatever. So it's not about um, uh, trying to uh, degrade uh, their, their their importance, but they didn't didn't trigger uh, the the events. You know, they didn't cause the transformation. They shaped the way mm -hmm. of the transformation because that 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 that, that kind of historical role was assigned to them you know uh, the big historical role was uh, assigned to the soviet union you know? and 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 luckily we can say the soviet union collapsed and then all that uh, other kind of transformation in east century was made possible one last question it's the 30th anniversary of 1989 is 1989 still relevant today do we still live in the era of 1989 and when you mentioned the brest litovsk syndrome uh, which uh, comes from the Leninist thesis that if the Soviet Union's, Union's existence is mortally endangered, it can renounce its East European peripheries in order to survive, but it can also reclaim it uh, at a time uh, that it uh, thinks necessary. And in this regard, it, what, what you said and what you write reminds me of you know the current expansion of Russia in, in Eastern Ukraine or Crimea, or is this is this still a an, an argument for 
you know, the, the fact or the, the hypothesis that we still live in the era of 1989, is 1989 still relevant today? Well, in this particular sense, as you mentioned, yes. Uh, we, we can say uh, the, the Russian expansion, which we can witness uh, especially since uh, 2010 uh, and, and on, uh, is something very serious, you know, which, which must be taken seriously. Of course, uh, uh, it's also different uh, from the kind of um, uh, Soviet influence uh, over Eastern Europe after the Second World War, you know, because that was a very different geopolitical situation. You know, there was an uh, uh, explicit division of, um, of uh, spheres of influences between East and West, you know, in which uh, Eastern Europe, the East Central European states were assigned to the Soviet sphere of influence and everybody accepted it and recognized it and, and respected that, you know. But today there is no such understanding, no, no such, even this kind of uh, uh, tacit agreement uh, about that, because there was no any written agreement of that status quo, but there was a tacit agreement, tacit understanding. No, not today we don't have that, you know. However, there's a drive on, uh, from, from, uh, from Russia uh, to re-establish as much as the, the former uh, sphere of influence as, as possible. Uh, in the first case, it, it, it regards um, uh, the, 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 the closest countries, that is the post-Soviet space, uh, that is the countries of the Soviet Union itself, in which belonged once to the Soviet Union. And, um, and it's not so much uh, true for the other countries which belonged uh, to the sphere of influence, like, like, like Hungary or Bulgaria, Romania uh, or Poland. Uh, however, uh, what we can, con uh, what we can um, uh, see and, and witness is that they actually are using all kinds of means uh, to go as far as possible uh, in this process, you know, but by hidden means. Uh, now uh, the situation is uh, again different in, in that sense, you know. Uh, during the uh, Cold War, the sphere of influence was an explicit thing. Everybody knew it, everybody had to uh, obey the rules of it, you know, and you couldn't uh, deny the existence of it because it was so evident, you know. Uh, today, everybody denies it, you know, the Hungarian government denies it, Putin denies it, and it still exists, you know, okay? So this is an absolutely different thing. And you can never prove how it works, just like corruption. How can you prove corruption? Uh, it's, it's not that people come and, yes, I, I am corrupt, and now please, please jail me. No, nobody will tell that, you know, and nobody will give you any, any evidence, you know, uh, that, that uh, could be used against the uh, corrupt politicians or, or, or economic actors and whatever. So here again, uh, the bigger, biggest problem of that is that this kind of relationship is evolving, uh, but we don't see uh, how it works, because only the top players uh, actually know the actual uh, mechanism of the, of the of the of the whole uh, relationship, and of the, another new element is of course that while uh, the uh, uh, partnership during the uh, Cold War period, being in the Soviet sphere of influence, was not voluntary. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, because you simply mm -hmm. had to be there whether you liked or not, you know, because the, you were sil simply assigned uh, to the Soviet sphere of influence and, and, and such. Uh, today, there is a very important voluntary element in this. Uh, the, let's say we have two uh, different examples, Poland and Hungary. Uh, Poland, with this traditional anti-Russian mm -hmm. position, uh, actually can resist, uh, so far at least, this kind of Soviet, uh, so this kind of Russian Putin 
interest and, and, and influence uh, because because of the traditionally very strong um, uh, anti-Russian uh, emotions and feelings and, and sentiments in the country. Uh, so they do a lot of nasty things, you know, uh, uh, anti-democratic things, but but uh, but uh, 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 like like pro-Putin or pro-Russian uh, kind of um, uh, 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 like actions and uh, and politics, you know, uh, uh, are not among them. At least uh, not what what we can see. In the case of Hungary, it's different uh, because what we see is, is is the kind of voluntary category. You you don't have to do that. You know, uh, you are not not obliged. There, there are no actual rules. There's no no Soviet army to threaten you or anything like that. Uh, like in the Cold War, uh, and the political leadership does it um, uh, on their own and and uh, in, a, in a voluntary way. Uh, we don't know where, are, where, where the limits are, of course. So the, the problem is, and as I said, we don't see the mechanisms. Eh? How serious is this? Uh, and what are the conditions? You know, who offers what? You know, who gets what? You know, and how? Uh, all these are are in the dark. And um, as you say, well, um, the white spots of the Cold War. I mean, the white spots of today are are more important in in that sense. And I'm very skeptical because uh, the white spots of the Cold War will uh, ho hopefully uh, sooner or later become uh, uh, um, revealed and, and 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 researchable as 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 they are gradually the time uh, but these kind of whites but today uh, they are not you know and because because that there are not even documents you know like like uh, the council of ministers um, uh, meetings are mm. not recorded anymore for many many years now in Hungary uh, which of course it was uneventual during the Cold War the Politburo minutes um, uh, were verbatim uh, minutes and then we have 200 pages of transcripts mm. of every Politburo meeting uh, meeting uh, every second week um, that that's a treasury for, for the historian for, for today's history uh, when it will be written like decades from now, you have nothing. So that's 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 for a historical perspective or from a perspective of a historian, uh, that's that's one of the very distressing uh, uh, prospects. You know, as far as the white spots themselves, are of course, very difficult. It's mostly uh, the the secret police um, uh, um, or, or, or or KGB line. Uh, which is still absolutely in the dark, uh, but I don't think they would um, reveal uh, so big sensations, mm -hmm. which actually would change the big story uh, in any uh, uh, fundamental way. All right. On this note, uh, Chaba Bekesh, professor of history at Corvinus University, thank you for uh, the conversation. Thank you very much.